This is Mate, a podcast about marketing, advertising, technology, and entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Adam Jaffrey, and I'm a digital strategist, a podcaster, and an entrepreneur. Today, we're speaking to Sean Zinsmeister, who is the host of the Stack and Flow podcast, and he is an expert on marketing automation, data, technical marketing, all of that really interesting, um, but also usually confusing stuff. So, if you're a marketer and you want to learn how to get better conversion rates, how to rank your leads better, um, how to understand the big data that's being generated by your company um, and, and that you don't know what to do with, then this is the episode to listen to. It's a really great chat and Sean is a super exciting guy. Uh, so let's go talk to him. So who are you and what do you do? My name is Sean Zinsmeister and I head product marketing at Infer. All right. Now, Infer is a, a software company, um, and we'll get into that in a little bit. But um, I did want to ask you just from the outset, what is product marketing? The way I like to think about product marketing is you are in charge of the entire go-to-market strategy. You have a product that your engineering and your product management teams have built. They know what it is, You know what the product is, what problem it's supposed to solve. And your product marketing team's job is to come up with that message and figure out how they're going to share that product with the world. Um, and they, they're in a really important piece that sits in between product management and what you might find with corporate marketing teams like campaigns teams and, and things like that. And it might be um, kind of pertinent to, to note here for those who are not familiar with um, software marketing Product management um, is maybe something that we, we need to define as well um, because this whole world of like software um, as a service is a, is a little confusing for people who may not be familiar. So, let's just back it up uh, another couple of steps and start with maybe what is software as a service and then what does a product um, manager do? And then that'll kind of link uh, up nicely to what you're talking about as a product marketer. Sure. Well, I mean, you're asking all the big questions, which is good. Um, you know, software software is a service. And the way to really think about it is, you know, before we had what they call SaaS, there was what they call perpetual licensing. Um, you know, I would purchase a piece of software to download to my computer and install it. I pay once, you know, and maybe I'd pay for upgrades and patches and things for that later on. But it's essentially one and done. And that's what they used to call a perpetual licensing model. And mostly that was your downloading and executable from, you know, uh, whoever was providing the software from. So, you know, Windows or, or, or one of these things. Or if you're on a Mac, you'd be downloading what they call the .dmg, right? And then you install that and it runs natively on your computer. Mm-hmm. Well, SaaS was not just a revolution in that, well, what if we made this software available from your web browser. So taking that experience and almost, I want to say virtualizing it in in the browser, but actually making the software available to be controlled in the browser, right? Because cloud computing is nothing more than uh, computers that are somewhere else. That's why they have all these server farms that you can then access to. They're taking care of the computing power so you don't have to have it on site. So part of it was making the software easier to access and obviously a lot of players who were involved in that disruption. Um, The other thing was the sort of service part of it, which is moving from that perpetual licensing to that of subscription. So think of like your Netflix account or something that you pay monthly for, your favorite iPhone app and things like that. You know, these are all software that you pay a little bit as you go. So perhaps rather than paying $100 for a year, 
uh, for a piece of software, you're paying a little bit month by month. And, th- and that's been a really, really revolutionary business model um, for people who are working and developing software. So, you know, that's part technology, you know, moving from, uh, you know, the sort of desktop software, traditional box desktop software, uh, from, you know, being able to offer that uh, in the browser. Um, and, and obviously, being able to offer that software in the browser also sort of democratizes the operating system as well, right? You know, you can operate that from any computer. It doesn't need to just be a Windows piece of software or a Mac piece of software. Um, and then the other part was the business model itself, moving from that perpetual licensing to a subscription pricing model. Um, so I, <laughs> hopefully that was a simple enough answer for, you know, the what is the SaaS part, Um mm. And, and it's, what is the sort of product marketing part? I think that the best way to think of this is, you know, product management teams work with engineering teams to build this great software. Um, you know, your product management and engineering teams have, they have determined that there is a problem in the market to solve. And they think that their solution, you know, is going to be the best to solve it. You know, it's going to be able to do it, you know, the fastest, the the cheapest, uh, you know, all those, all that good stuff. You know, and then once you sort of have that product available, it's handed off to the product marketing team and say, hey, you know, this is what the product does. This is how it solves this problem. And your product marketing team takes that figures out what the message is and figures out how we are going to bring this to market. So, you know, this is where your channel planning comes into play and really thinking about what we call a go-to-market strategy. You know, how, what is the best way for us to generate demand? Um, and then passing that to your more campaigns team. So you can kind of see where the baton gets transferred along here. And, and really, by the way, that, that handoff works whether you're selling software as a service or widgets. I mean, it really is, is the same, in particular, uh, particularly in, in a B2B context, if that makes sense. You're always looking at that baton handoff uh, from product management and engineering to product marketing, uh, who then kind of can extend that to your campaigns team. The reason that I like to think of that baton handoff, by the way, is it makes sure that the message doesn't get lost along the way, that product management and engineering built this, intended to solve this problem that was then aligned with how product marketing you know, delivered that message so it made sense. That message was then polished and then packaged in social media programs from your marketing communications team or you know, put on display by your events team. And everything feels in line with like what the core product and the and the corporate values. So it's it's really thinking about that chain really defines uh, product marketing in that context. All right, so that is a fantastic foundation to kick off this conversation with. And I might just paraphrase um, what you've said to, to kind of sum it up. Essentially, um, software companies these days are selling um, what they call, you know, quote unquote, a product. Um, that's usually a, a software product. It could be something like uh, Salesforce or MailChimp or Hootsuite or Infer, which you work for, which we'll get into. Um that's the, the, the product that they build uh, and it's accessible via a, a browser. And the the project manager, I suppose, um, is maybe another way you could describe uh, this role of the product manager because they're, they're managing the, the features and the, and the, um, the product roadmap of what's going to come next and, and um, how, how they're going to build it and resource it internally with their engineering team. Mm. So, it's the product manager. And then the conduit that you're talking about, the baton handoff, 
um, where, where it gets handed over to a product marketer, which is somebody who understands internally what the product uh, is and the value it delivers. Um, but they're a little bit closer to the customer, I guess, and, and figuring out, like you said, the go-to-market strategy, how they're going to communicate the features and benefits of a product to sell it to a particular cohort of customers. Mm. Is that a kind of nice summary of what you, you said there? Yeah, I think with maybe like a couple of updates that I would say, I mean, I, I think, you know, product managers are incredibly close to their customers, I think. So I think it, mm-hmm. it would be an unfair comparison to say that they're removed. I mean, they, they're the ones who are really taking that customer feedback and, trans, and you know, transforming them into features and things like that. So that'd be the first. Project management is, uh, is a really interesting job role because they can also be in several different places. You know, I, I, in my last company, for example, we had a project manager uh, that was helped us in charge of our marketing programs. I like to think of project managers, and you know, a lot of my colleagues they may uh, they may groan a little bit at my <laughs> my description, but they're very much traffic cops in a lot of this. Like they're managing the uh, you know the production calendar and things like that. Like they don't necessarily need to get in there with the customer to work alongside a product manager, but they're managing you know perhaps a feature schedule and programs and making sure that like things are delivered on time. They're managing milestones and and things like that. So I think project managers uh, find their way into all sorts of great parts of an organization. And in my personal opinion, I think project management is probably one of the most undervalued skills in an organization, whether you're a startup of five people or 5,000. It's amazing how marketing teams in particular, the reason that they're not effective is because they fail at orchestration and getting things done. And a lot of that is the failure in how they organize things. Um, and how they actually move the baton from you know one business unit and function to another. Um, you don't need to have a dedicated project management. Most businesses can't afford it, but you should have those skills and be thinking about that because you know that's how you get from start to end with that execution of your project. And it's it's just you know it, when we, when you when anybody anytime anybody brings up project management, I always get really passionate about it because. Mm-hmm. It always feels like, especially from the marketing standpoint, to be this like forgotten skill set or soft skill set um, <laughs> that's actually incredibly valuable. Yeah. Uh, and, and before we kind of jump into um, uh, some of the really juicy questions, just to kind of set up a little bit more context, uh, I just wanted to understand a little bit more about what Infer does, because uh, I think that's going to kind of guide um, some of the rest of the conversation. So, you work at Infer, um, which as I understand, is, I guess, a bit of a marketing automation um, software. Maybe describing your own words. Yeah. So, I think at, 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 its, at its core, you know, we're a B2B software company. Um, so, you know, we sell to uh, medium to large enterprise businesses. Um, and our software is a predictive analytics for sales and marketing. Um, the, the story that I like to say that's easy to understand is, you know, you use a search box every single day and you're entering keywords into a search box, a query, um, and that, in turn, the search browser is delivering you winners. You know, these are the closest, most relevant, these are things that fit your search query. So, essentially what we do is we package up a lot of the predictive analytics that are used in the consumer search world to help businesses determine uh, and qualify their leads and prospects. That's just one of many problems that we kind of help solve because, you know, they they need help being able to understand, is this person a good fit for my business? You know, what is their behavior like? And there's lots of different modeling techniques in our software. Uh, helps them really identify and target those best prospects. 
you are the head of or the VP of product marketing at Infer. Now, I wanted to ask before we kind of um, jump into um, what that means and, and kind of what you do. When you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? What, was it was it this? <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Um, I so my background's really funny. Um, I have what was always called a, a squiggly background. Um, I actually. I always wanted to be a performer. So I actually have a musician's background and I studied music uh, for most of my life leading up to uh, when I went to college. Um, and I already studied uh, music composition and theory and I studied classical voice as a singer uh, for many years. And I studied actually opera for, for 12 years. That's where those uh, so dulcet re- tones come from. <laughs> That's where the dulcet tones come from. I know my <laughs> way around the microphone, right? Um, but and I always thought that I'd find my way uh, into doing something with the arts, and that that's really like what I I sort of envisioned. And I I never marketing kind of found me, to be completely honest. Um, it was a it was a really funny way uh, how I got there. Nobody really decides that they um, want to work in you know marketing technology. I suppose when they're a kid. <laughs> I mean, like marketing automation, marketing technology, all this stuff that we're talking about today is really an industry that, I mean, literally nobody has heard of unless you are in the the deep depths of a very specific niche area of marketing. Well, beyond starting as a a performer and kind of letting marketing find you, like- how did you how did you end up in this role? Um, because you're in a pretty senior position now at, I guess, infers maybe traditionally a startup, but you guys have quite a few employees, so you you may be kind of pushing that barrier between whether you're a startup or not. Um, how, how did you end up in this kind of senior role doing technical marketing within a technology company? Yeah, well, I ask myself that every day. You know, it's just <laughs> it's <laughs> you know, it's the my God, how did I get here? Um, so it's it again, like I so you know, I talked to you about how I have a I studied music composition in theory. Um, I then worked uh, coming out of college. I worked as a sound designer and an audio engineer. So I was working for a, a small firm in Watertown, Massachusetts, and I was doing you know uh, audio programs for all sorts of different software companies, radio spots, and and a lot of this other stuff. And, you know, during that time, that was actually when I went and got my degree. I did my graduate work in project management uh, while I was studying that. And in 2009, the market really went south and a lot of the big publishing companies we were doing business with uh, stopped. And so I sort of was then left to sort of figure out, okay, well, where do I want to take my career here? Because I don't think that I'm going to be able to, to scale this uh, going and just lurking for another studio. So I had really enjoyed the business side of what I was doing as a sound and uh, sound designer because I was managing my own projects and I was dealing with, with clients uh, that I decided to go to business school and get my MBA in strategic marketing. Um, I am not a coder. I have certainly tried to teach myself and I enjoy learning the technical understandings of things, you know, so I can understand basic HTML and CSS and know what I'm looking at, but you certainly wouldn't want to use my website code. Mm-hmm. 
I, I wanted to get into tech and I knew I wasn't going to do it as a computer programmer because my brain just doesn't think like that. Um, and, and I looked at the field and I said, well, you know, I, I think marketing is, is a really nice hybrid of creative arts, which I've known my entire life. Um, and there's, you know, definitely a need for it in technology. And I started working for startups right away when I was doing my, my graduate degree program. Uh, eventually found my way out to the West Coast into the, you know, into Silicon Valley. And one of the companies that I worked for, one of the startups, essentially, uh, I had signed on as a, just a, a sort of marketing manager, sort of generalist sort of role. And I had done a lot of technical work with SEO and things like that. And I kind of taught myself um, a lot of the digital marketing basics, but they had this thing called marketing automation and they had a, a system an eloqua system and they said your job is to, to figure this out and i had you know i had never been in front of one of these rigs before um but i have to admit what was really interesting about marketing automation is is how similar it was to the work i was doing with audio engineering because you know when we talk about audio engineering it's really figuring out you know signal to noise ratio and i have all of these different pieces of gear and pieces of technology and i have to make them all work together to you know produce this message that you know as an old professor used to tell me it says make it sound good right make it sound appealing delight people and that sort of thing so i was actually able to ever since everything really comes through that fundamental idea of signal flow that i really was able to take from audio engineering as soon as i started to see how the things started to flow in marketing automation which is you know we're creating these messages we have this content you know we're going to push this here to to generate conversions here and this is going to flow through the business um a lot of those mechanics and certainly the muscle memory was very familiar to me. Um, and I started picking it up right away. Um, I started really enjoying it too because marketing automation also brought out that that technical side. Uh, not too technical. I learned that very quickly too because, you know, the thing that I sort of realized is that, you know, as I grew a team uh, and sort of ran global marketing operations before at my old company before I joined Infer, um, you know, I started to obviously realize that there are people who are far more technical than me, but at least I have a good understanding where I can help direct them uh, to what I want to accomplish. And, you know, I, it became my job to sort of hire those people who are going to be a lot better at that than me. And I could step away from, you know, pushing the buttons as it were uh, to being a little bit more strategic. Uh, and part of that was uh, my last company, uh, again, like, I, seriously, these things have sort of just found me. I, I, I wish I could say that I was, you know, very, I, I sought them out or I, you know, I really heavily researched them. But one day, I literally, a sales leader came by my desk and, uh, you know, dumped, the, he just sort of had proclaimed victory and he says, we did it. You know, we bought predictive, and I sort of looked at him with wild eyes, and I was like, I have no idea what that means. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, and he explained it to me, and I, said, I wasn't privy to the purchase or anything. But again, it was this other thing that was like, you got to, okay, we bought it, now you got to figure out how to use it. Uh, and I started talking with the Infer team, and I really fell in love with the technology. I got a chance to, you know, really see what, you know, I never would consider myself a data guy or a data nerd. Um, but I really just found out how interesting these things are, how you can drive business value from them. And, you know, eventually, 
when I made the move from being a technical operator and a marketing operations manager to what I really wanted to do, which is have a career in product marketing, which is, you know, definitely a better fit for me. Uh, I, I, the key was I wanted to go deep with a product. I loved the infer team. I had already been hands-on with it. Uh, and you know, I wrote to them, I literally wrote to them one day cause I was friendly and I said, Hey, I, I think that I can do a really good job with this. What do you think? Uh, and it ended up, uh, the timing was great and a good fit and yeah. And, and I honestly, I've just been, I, I feel like I do my, I feel like I do my hobby for a living. I really do. Like, I, I think that that's one of the, the time has sort of flown by. Uh, I just celebrated my two year anniversary in fur. Uh, and I've, I've, you know, I think I've been able to help the business uh, have a lot of success as well. And, and uh, we, if we just keep innovating. I think it's really fun to be on the, the edge of what we're talking about with, you know, artificial intelligence and what could be done with data. And yeah, it's just, it's just, it's, I'm just still just keep having a blast. Great. Well, and, and that's a fascinating story. The, the, I, I love the um, the comparison of uh, audio engineering to, uh, to I guess, technology and marketing um, because it's not one that I've thought of before. But um, have, have you used that in your explanations? Like, it's kind of a, a nice, uh, is it a, what is it, a simile or a... Um a simile, yeah. It's, a, it's definitely a go-to for me, uh, for sure. But I, I like it because it's also like... It's not a manufactured story for me either. No. Like, yep. I, I also I also do it because I don't believe in this traditional marketing education when I talk to people. You know, I I just, you know, I mean, the best marketing people I've worked with have been musicians. They've had roles in sales. My God, I mean, a, a marketing person who can't sell anything is terrible. And, mm. I, and I, I'm lucky that I got to, you know, have a hat in you know, putting on the sales role in some of these companies and realizing, first of all, that, you know, that's a really hard job. <laughs> um, yep. and, and I think that that just learning that empathy is important, right? But it also is, I, I love it because I think that, you know, when you talk to people, people don't realize how applicable their skills are. It just may not be a linear path for them. Yeah. You know, and they may, they may just have to be a bit more entrepreneurial, maybe a bit more creative, um, and, and I also recognize that not everybody likes doing that. You know, this is why I have friends who left college and they said, okay, I went to school and now I'm going to law school to become a lawyer. And that is, you know, what you do. There's nothing, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. I just don't think that that's the way uh, modern day education works anymore. I don't know. I don't know if it's the best way to get the value, but I think that, you know, I, I've, I've been able to enjoy uh, using a lot of the skills that I've picked up along the way uh, in my job, and and I don't think it's anything that's just unique to me. I think it's something that I encourage everybody to sort of to to do. Yeah, I mean, you talked about um, the the squiggly path before, and and you know how just just recently you said uh, it's not a linear flow that people are going through. To be honest, I don't think life is linear. You know, people. <laughs> that's you, you, true. If you if you lay out a A4 sheet of paper um, in landscape on, on the desk right in front of you and you think of yourself right now today in the bottom left corner and in the top right is where you want to be, your kind of goal, your goals right now. And, and what we think is if you draw a diagonal line through the middle of that piece of paper, you're going to go from point A to point B in a straight line. In actual fact, what I've found um, has happened when I reflect on my own life and through talking to people like yourself, it just ends up being a, a scribbly kind of mess. <laughs> and um, 
and you don't even end up on, on the top right of that piece of paper. You end up in another piece of paper in another yeah. building in another country, right? Like, yeah. so, so <laughs> it, there's no. And the other thing I just wanted to mention, because um, you touched on it there, I, you're talking about, um, you know, professional education in marketing. And no doubt that you gained a lot from the MBA that you did. But like I interviewed um, one of my uh, university lecturers a couple of weeks ago. It's um, mm. in, in the podcast, um, uh, Peter Wagstaff. It's a really great interview. And um, we talk about, well, I kind of challenged him on this notion of is marketing education actually valid anymore when most of what we learn today is on the job? Um, mm. And uh, and particularly when it comes to things like marketing with technology and and um, marketing automation, this kind of emerging field that we're going to get into in a second, um, yeah. I, I, they they don't teach that kind of stuff at university. It's very theoretical. It's all you know, Porter's five forces and the marketing mix and um, SWOT analyses. <laughs> and I can tell you right now, I've never used any of that stuff in my professional career, never. <laughs> so, what's the point on spending four years and a hundred thousand dollars learning that crap? When yeah. I can just listen to a few podcasts, just get into the workforce and then and then um, learn from there. And it sounds like that's what you did. So, yeah, anyway. I think it's well, I mean, it's tough because I think you're absolutely right um, that there's definitely a disruption for whatever market the best types of marketing education. And I think that a majority of the MBA programs, by the way, are very much behind the times. Um, I think that, you know, there should be a far greater demand for things uh, like statistics uh, in marketing. I think that, you know, marketers need to bring statistical learnings uh, to the table. I think it's an incredibly valuable part because not everybody's going to be a creative mind uh, and things like that. Um, I did, I, there is something to be said, though, about, yes, developing the mindset is one of it, you know, understanding, you know, what, you know, this whole profession is about. I think there is something still to the mechanics, too, you know, where it's like, you know, it, 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 I get maybe a baseball or for you, maybe it's a cricket analogy, I don't know. But I mean, I think very few people can, you know, take the bat and just, you know, start start swinging and having a lot of success. I think that there's you know, some people are just going to be natural athletes, right? And they're going to be able to pick things up right away and, and, and good on them. I think other people, like, they need to understand the basic mechanics. And then, you know, through that exercise, uh, you know, is Porter's Five Forces ever going to be directly applicable to anything that you're doing? Not necessarily, but you may find yourself in familiar positions where, you know, that knowledge is dawning on you and it leads you to these other ideas, right? And so that you know, you're swinging with a full motion. You know, these case studies that you stud that, that might relate to certain problems that you may face. And they, and they may not, but like you're equipped with that knowledge and there's, there's something to that flow though that I still think is, is valuable. But you're right, like the, the practical application of doing a SWOT analysis, you're more likely to get laughed at more than, you know, be <laughs> applauded for how yeah. well you did at business school. <laughs> sure, sure. Let's talk about something they're definitely not teaching at university right now, which is marketing automation. Mm-hmm. So, how would you define uh, marketing automation? Oh, you have it's all hard, the big it's ones. It's a hard question. Uh, yeah, it's I, a, it, I it is around. a hard one. It's, and you don't mess around. And it's almost just like, it, it, the, the tough thing is like me thinking about like, okay, what's A, what's the easiest way to explain it? And number yeah. two is like, which which angle do I choose? Um, but, but, but Sean, so don't think, complain because yeah. I did send you the questions before we hit record. So, you had time to prepare. <laughs> so, don't, don't blame I me. 
But I like, I, I'm an improv guy, though. I like thinking on my feet. I don't, well, I'm no canned answers for the Mate podcast, right? All right good. Um, <laughs> so I think, so, you know, uh, if you, you got to look back at marketing automation, I think, really arrived on the scene in full force in the year 2000. Um, and marketing automation, actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna stray a little bit from my objectivity for just a second, and I'm gonna give you a little bit of an opinion, but I think it's one that's shared. Um, you know, it, it became a way for marketers to send better to send emails uh, at a mass scale. You know, there. Can, can I interrupt uh, for were, one sec, Sean? Please. You, yeah. Were you about to say send better email? As, as, <laughs> as in, like the tagline for Mailchimp, which is kind <laughs> yeah, of like, I'm trying to angle that sponsorship money your way, right? All right, all right. Um, Just yeah, we'll get we'll get some Mailchimp dollars. Yeah, we're gonna. <laughs> Sorry, or even just a, in, there's a podcaster inside a joke. So <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, and and I say you know send better email. Uh, and really, what it's become is it's given marketers an easier way to spam people. Um, and unfortunately, yep. that's just the way that it's gone. Um, and and now some of those automation quote unquote I'm using air quotes here has now moved onto the sales side, you know where they have now an easier time of spamming people as well and around we go. Mm-hmm. But really the basic fundamentals of marketing automation and it it is a very deep complicated subject. But um, first of all it it is about signal flow, but in this case it's figuring out the sort of lead life cycle, uh, the data behind it. Um, and and how that drives business success. And I think that it starts on, so, you know, somebody visits your website, makes an inquiry, and then what happens to them, right? You know, they fill out a form on your website, and then what? They're taken to sales to talk to, they're sent a bit more content. What is that? You hear a lot of people talk about customer journeys, right? Like this whole thing around mapping the customer journey, what happens to them? And, mm-hmm. and that's really what we've, what we decided, which is, okay, well, you know, somebody has arrived on your website and they have, you know, requested more information, whether that's they downloaded a piece of content, they looked at this, they made some other behavior. What then does the system, in this case, marketing automation, what triggered events does it do? And it becomes a very complicated, if this, then that, what we call conditional logic um, is what the computer program is essentially doing for you. You know, I filled out a form. Uh, I, you know, I said that I was this, this, and this. Maybe there's a, an action that says, okay, if Sean requested to talk to sales, he goes right to this round robin thing, and it goes to this particular sales person, uh, and it connects with another program, which people should be familiar with, called the CRM, uh, Marketing Automation you know, is sort of the beginning piece. If you have your, if you had three pieces, you know, you have your website, that's a sort of entry portal, your marketing automation, which really powers all your forms and, and tracking on the website as well. And then your CRM, where things sort of eventually live, your customer relationship management and a lot of, you know, popular solutions there. Um, and, and that's, that was really, that's kind of the best way for me to sort of describe automation. But it, it, I can't help but avoid the automation, talking about the automation part of it. Because I think that there's a misnomer when it comes to marketing automation. Because I mentioned that I think it's become sort of a better way to spam people. Uh, It certainly made it easier. It made it easier for marketing people to spend a lot more emails to a lot more people um, and do it at scale. 
Um, it certainly did that. And yeah, it made it so they could sort of cut up their databases so they could sort of segment and target a little bit better. But at the end of the day, marketers just like pushing that button and blasting people with with messages, uh, whether they asked it for it or not, unfortunately. And so you have to sort of look at like what exactly is being automated. I mean, there certainly is some some algorithms at play that will help, you know, build intelligent business logic to sort of move that information and move that, you know, signal flow, like I talked about from one place to another and have it arrive on a salesperson's doorstep, uh, in, in whatever form it came from, from the marketing. Um, but I question, you know, especially in the original conception, how much automation was really, really going on. I think that we've gotten a lot further. We've also created a lot more problems, but again, probably a way bigger answer than you were looking for, but hopefully it broke, it broke down the pieces so people could kind of understand, you know, where we've come from, from the year 2000 when this stuff arrived on the scene to, this, you know, where we are today with, you know, 2017 and the arrival of, you know, AI and predictive analytics and, and sort of dealing with this, this sort of big D question, which is the data. Yeah, yeah, sure. And so, really, I mean, marketing automation is about um, measuring customer behavior. Um, just generally, it's online uh, where people come to a website, they might click on a product, add it to a cart, and then abandon their cart, and then we kind of retarget them. That's an example of marketing automation. Um, or it could be um, a range of other kind of signals and data inputs. And and essentially, what the marketer is doing is setting up um, workflows and, and rules um, for when certain conditions are met, then a particular automation flow will take place. So, you kind of alluded exactly. to quite often it's sending um, uh, email communications and, and kind of following up and trying to, I guess, what the industry would call it is build a relationship with a customer, what you maybe mm-hmm. called it was spamming people. Um, <laughs> but- um, but but uh, that's kind of a very common example. But other things might be um, if you have gone to, let's say, a uh, superannuation um, website or that in, in the US, that's your 401k, you, you may, I don't know, have some behavior that indicates that you're an elderly citizen rather than um, a, a, young, uh, a young citizen. And then the next time you visit the site, it remembers, a you know, the cookie from your browser and starts to show imagery that reflects people in your uh, life situation um, rather than showing, you know, uh, young kids running around and that kind of thing or families and whatever. It might show people who are getting ready for retirement and right. um, it might push the, the retirement plans up into first position um, where in the first time you visited, they may have been in the third position. So, they're trying to like, I guess, make things easier for the customer, make people more likely to convert and that kind of thing. I I think that the two words that people like to throw around, uh, well, I guess the one word people like to throw around is personalization, right? Everybody wants this personalized experience. Like you talked about, you know, certain of us people of a certain age group seeing that type of imagery. I think a better word is relevancy, you know, it's like, it, 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 are you seeing ads that you would have any interest in whatsoever in your life? Are they related to where you are, who you are, what you might be dealing with, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You know, everybody can talk these big games about personalization and things like that. And I think that there's certainly a creepy factor, by the way, as well, when things get too personalized. Yes. Um, because we, we certainly, you know, one thing marketers are really good at is collecting a lot of data. They're not very good at making that data actionable and sort of like, you know, understanding what to do with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're really, really good at collecting it. Um, and, <laughs> and these, especially when you get into the B2C world, you know, the amount of data that is for sale 
Uh, these free programs that you that everybody likes to use online, uh, they ain't free. Like you're sell, you are selling your rights to the data, and they are selling them to whomever they want. That's how the businesses make money, and that's yep. why these advertising plays like. You know, well, there was a, this is just sorry. I was just going to say there's a really horif- uh, yeah. horrifying example of that recently. There's a there's an email service called Unroll.me. I'm not sure if you're aware mm-hmm. of it, but I am. Um, yeah, very aware. So, I, so I use Unroll.me, uh, or I used, uh, and mm-hmm. they um, basically the service uh, allows you to unsubscribe from emails really easily. It kind of just scans your you connect your email account. It scans through all the subscription emails you've got, and um, you can kind of click yes or no and unsubscribe from things. Um, um, what happens though that the service is free? What they were doing is in the background selling that data onto other providers, and of course, um, wherever there's a scandal to be had, Uber shows up yep. um, with a big pile of cash ready to launch themselves into that scandal. So, um, <laughs> so Uber um, was buying uh, data from from this service and uh, and using it to spy on their competitor Lyft um, and the the kind of rides that their customers were were taking with the competitor, and then using that internally for um, you yeah. know targeting and competitive practices. So points for creativity, I guess. But yeah, they get points for creativity every time but uh for ethics i'm not i'm not quite sure (laughs) no i think that they straddle that line when it comes to ethics and listen you know this is the thing where you know there's a expression in in politics where they say the cover-up is worse than the crime i mean i don't think people are as stupid as some people think and i think that if you're up front about the terms of services rather than hiding this stuff in legalese and understand what's going on and we continue to build the education I think you might be surprised about how many people, how much people just sort of willfully sit there and are like, yeah, I don't care. You know, whatever. Like, I just don't want to pay for it. I'd rather, you know, sync my Google accounts with it or, or, or my, sorry, my Google address book or something like that. Um, and then, you know, I mean, if it's for sale, then it just becomes, you know, it's, there's, there is a lot of ethics involved with data and protection and, you know, you start to get into things like PII, you know, personally identifiable inf- information, and it, things can get very tricky very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to feel like if there's some sort of sanitation on how that business is being dealt. Um, but man, it's like everybody's data is for sale. I don't know how I, I, I personally, I don't know how I get on half the lists that I'm on uh, for some of the stuff. But I just imagine that, you know, uh, the amount of services out there that are manually crawling and scraping these things, like mm-hmm. LinkedIn scraping, LinkedIn scraping and and all this stuff. I mean, there are literally factories of of just of humans sitting there doing copy paste jobs, you know, that are just sort of building these databases where it's not even that it's even incredibly programmatic. They're just, mm. you know, everybody's going on LinkedIn because LinkedIn doesn't have a pipe officially. So they're going to sit there and be like, Oh, okay, well, you know, let's just go grab all the information and we'll just copy paste this into a separate database and boom, there's the product. And Hey, look, we didn't have to pay for it because it was publicly available through this, through this thing. Yep. So, I mean, you know, if people are going to put it out there and like, you know, you put your personal email address on your Facebook page uh, and then you don't tweak your privacy rights, everybody's going to grab that or, you know, this, it, it, you're, you're making that available. And I think part of that is because we haven't done a good job uh, around the education, around the fact that like this is happening and this is what business is happening. I think some people can say that this is a bad practice. Some people could say it's a good practice. 
Um, you know, but I'll tell you something. My little brother-in-law is 17, and I think that the generation coming up behind me, behind us, I, I think that they're far more savvy. And I think they understand this stuff a lot more, and I think that they kind of get it. Um, and it's not that they're just sort of really okay with the fact that it's that. They just sort of understand that everything uh, is creating that digital footprint. And it, it you know, I think that they just, they just understand that it's going to be be amplified to everybody, and that's just how they, they sort of want to live their, their virtual lives. It's, just, it's so different from generation to generation. It's really fascinating. Mm, yeah, and almost like the um, the the legal frameworks and um, the attitudes lag by almost like one generation behind the technology. The technology is much faster than all the rest of kind of the the culture behind it, um, and and you can't stop the technology. So you've just got to play catch up yeah. consistently. So um, I think it's really interesting, Sean, that you're talking about data and data privacy and that kind of stuff because. Um, I did want to kind of shift gears a little bit and, and move on to uh, infer, which is mm-hmm. primarily, you know, um, about data, and and hopefully, um, a lot of the data that um, that marketers are using is things that they're entitled to, and they're not do- doing shady practices like Uber. But um, <laughs> let's let's talk about uh, the infer and uh, and and what you guys do, and maybe how um, the data that that you're generating can help to build um, smarter marketing automation pipelines and customer journeys. Yeah, and I th- I you know we we sort of mentioned earlier I said, you know, marketers are really good at generating a lot of a lot of data. And what they're not good at again, I have to repeat is turning that data into actionable intelligence. You know, that's the the sort of military term, right? But th- things that they can use, like what what do I do next now that I know this? Um and what we help do is actually in the modeling of that data. So we take data from your CRM system, all the historical data, uh, all of the data from your marketing automation platform that you're collecting, you know, engagement data and things like that, things from your forms. Uh, and then any other data set that is, is relevant to that business. Uh, and we model that. And we essentially are looking for what we call predictive signals um, because our goal is to build what we call a predictive model to accomplish a goal for a business. And a goal might be to, hey, I have too many leads. You know, my marketing team is just, they're just pouring these things in. You know, content marketing is hot right now. They got eBooks everywhere just flying in. The problem is, is that I can't throw enough humans at these things to determine, are these good leads, are these bad leads? And that energy drain is incredibly costly for a business because the amount of money that you could potentially waste sending expensive humans after bad leads is really, really big for a business. So you need to have a way of automating that. And part of that is using AI and predictive analytics. You know, how am I automatically crawling through all of this data to, to pick the winners, to go back to that analogy with, with Google, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and where the efficiency gains come in is number one, the marketing automation s- systems become more efficient because they have ways of intelligently processing this data. Um, because if you think about it, the basic use case for a predictive analytics model is filtering. You know, you're sort of realizing that most of this stuff is junk and is never going to convert. They're never going to buy from you. They're a terrible fit for your business. And you should just put this aside and put it in a, you know, in a SQL database somewhere or something like that. 
Um, and the rest you can then process. So it's, you know, we've made now the, it, the job is now easier for the marketing automation systems to handle because to tie it back to that history around marketing automation, they were really good at sending emails. But what they were not good at is handling the amount of data that, you know, modern businesses throw at them. And it, it, it's just not what they were built with. Um, you know, if you just think about, you know, it, it, pouring data into a jar, right? It's like the, they didn't build the jar big enough to handle the constant pouring of data. And big data companies and things like that and predictive analytics companies were built to scale with that. You know, it's like we've talked to some of the biggest companies in the world. They're like, oh, I don't know. We're pretty big. We're like, nobody is too big. I mean, with with, with the innovations in you know, Amazon Web Services and, you know, Redshift and a lot of the great complicated stuff where a lot of this data goes, um, the innovations there and computer processing power behind it is incredible. Um, and it's, it's already catching up with a lot of the data that these businesses are pouring in. Um, and a lot of, and, and to get back to it, you know, the end product is really around, you know, how do I make my sales team more, uh, how do I increase the performance of my sales team? You know, sales needs to know who to sell to. How do I make my marketing more efficient? Marketing needs to know who to market to. Uh, if I'm pushing marketing dollars after these programs, what are the best programs that are going to deliver me the most value? Uh, I don't know. Maybe your listeners aren't familiar. You know, there's the whole money ball idea. This was a, you know, there's without going into a whole thing, it was um, coined by the Oakland Athletics, a baseball team here, here in the States out of Oakland. And they really figured out because baseball is such a statistically driven uh, sport, they, they sort of figured out, you know, how they could model this data to gain an edge. Um, and a lot of that really is, it's not a bad, it is a quality over quantity type of um, idea when it comes to marketing, which is, it's not just the amount of downloads, the amount of inquiries you can get. It's, are you getting the right ones for your business? How are you prioritizing that? And then building real data-driven workflows from that. So hopefully some of those analogies can kind of clear up, um, not, not just what we do, but sort of also this, this sort of next, uh, this sort of next wave of innovation that, that marketers are, are, are tackling right now. So Sean, I, I do want to kind of get under the hood of, uh, of Infer a little bit more and, and understand how some of this technology is working. Um, because, I find that a lot of um, uh, data companies and, and marketing automation companies and well, just marketing technology in general, uh, even yeah. to, to the extent of um, SaaS companies, they speak very superfluously in, in buzzwords, <laughs> right? And, of course and, they do. And you and I have used <laughs> a lot of those today. Um, and it's very, you know, Silicon Valley-esque. Um, yep. I mean, looking at um, Infer's website on the About Us page, uh, there's there's a huge amount of buzzwords in there. And I want to just kind of pull a few out for you because uh, I, I think it'll be a funny exercise and, and then maybe you can explain what they mean to me. Um, yeah. It's like, um, it's like Infer have just uh, used the... Um, uh, it's almost like there's a, there's a Silicon Valley... Um, copywriting guide if you're a software company this is how you write your about page you <laughs> there's a there's a special blog post that everybody read and that's what that's what we're all sort of copying out exactly right? <laughs> so it's like you throw three buzzwords in the first um the first sentence then you um 
throw a, a, a feature and then a benefit, a few more buzzwords, mention some yeah. of the Fortune 500 companies that you work with, um, mention a few press outlets that have um, th- that have covered your company and then close. Um, yes. <laughs> so, I just want to read from, from the about page for Infer. Uh, yeah. in, Infer delivers data-delivered business applications. So, I think that's one of the, the buzzwords um, mm-hmm. that help companies win more customers. It's cloud-based solutions, another buzzword, leverage yep. proven data science, buzzword, to rapidly model the untapped data sitting in enterprises, buzzword, 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 um, <laughs> along with hundreds of other signals around the web. Inspired by the simplicity of the consumer web, Infer manifests advanced statistics across huge data sets, buzzword, buzzword, in applications that can get anyone up and running in a few days. Um, customers include blah, blah, blah from Fortune 1000 companies uh, and, uh, and numerous high growth companies. So, let's just do a quick fire round. Um, I'm going to read the buzzwords and you can um, and you can tell me what they mean. So, All right, let's go. Data-powered business applications. Yeah, I mean, it, that's that really is the fuel that runs what we do. I mean, we're at the core, we're an analytics company and analytics runs on data. Um, and then there's a couple things there where we crawl the web with our own web crawlers to grab what we call signals. So we're creating our own data. Uh, We're also taking data from the customer. So like I talked about, you know, extracting that from CRM systems, marketing automation systems. We're also bringing third party data into, you know, into the, into the, the scene as well. And we're helping to sort of prepare and process that data. Um, It's important to sort of realize that, businesses data is very, very dirty. And by that, I mean, like, if you have a bunch of humans doing data entry, a lot of the stuff's going to be wrong or not standardized, or, you know, this thing's lowercase when it should be this. Um, And we help clean up a lot of that data. So it can be modeled. Um, And I'm going to beat you to the next buzzword, because the next one has to be data science, Mm -hmm. uh, which is which is, you know, is, is an academic as a term as well, data science is about patterns. So once you've prepared that data, and there's a lot of ways that we use computer processing programs to process and help prepare that data, uh, enrich that data, so fill in the holes and and perhaps you know update things that need to be updated. Um, we then model that data um, and try to look for patterns. Okay, so we're trying to look for what makes. What is what? What are the predictive signals in there? And data science is all about finding the patterns in data. Um, my my favorite analogy is like looking at a unstructured cluster of stars in the sky. You know, I think that when the original explorers looked up there, they just saw you know a mess of stars. Where you know modern modern day. Um, astronomers now look at this and they can start to see patterns in the stars, which is where things like, you know, the Milky Way and the Big Dipper come in, right? You know, it's being able to use advanced technology to sort of understand those patterns in what might be considered an unstructured mess sort of to the layman's term. So so I think I got two of them in there. So hopefully that 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 sort of understands a little bit more of uh, of what we're doing there. Yeah, that's two. Um, the other ones that I just wanted to ask about is um, rapidly model the untapped data sitting in enterprises. Mm. Untapped is a key word. Um, a lot of these businesses, like I said, maybe I'm going to keep saying this, marketing and salespeople are really good at, at generating a lot of data, collecting a lot of data. Um, and it just tends to sort of sit there untapped, and, and really is untapped. Um, the best example that 
I can come up with is using a customer example is that, you know, we're talking marketing automation. So these ideas of nurture databases, okay? These are databases for, in layman's terms, this is a database full of email addresses that you may or may not be contacting. We don't know. The real idea is that most of these businesses have these very, very large and probably still growing database, nurture databases, um, that they're absolutely neglecting. They don't understand that like the best leads might be the ones that are already in the, their database and running what I would call like a predictive analytics around that can help light up prospects that are going to be really, really good for you. And, and what we've done is we've done that exercise for businesses. And the whole idea is that you use predictive to light up those prospects that are sitting on, you know, untapped in your database, as it were, uh, and send them to sales for aggressive follow-up. Uh, and pipeline is generated because of it. You know, they were good fits. Um, they just, you know, nobody had been touching them. Uh, and that's a really common occurrence uh, in, in a lot of businesses, not just for, for marketing and sales. Uh, but but just in general, yeah. And and um, Sean, I mean, I've I've actually said on this podcast a couple of times, I think, um, that everyone's talking about big data at the moment. Um, but yeah. most brands are not even using the small data that they have. Um, yeah, we just don't know how to um, make sense of it all uh, and and actually put it into action. So I, th- I think. Uh, um, based on what we've talked about today, it, it sounds like you guys are uh, kind of helping businesses do that. Well, um, look at look at the next. Uh, now we're just we're gonna flood the airways with buzzwords right now. What about <laughs> you know? What about like you know IoT stuff, Internet of Things? Remember that? I mean, this is stuff they've talked about for years. Where now you're creating all this new data that you know potentially could be very interesting, although the use cases are you know, only starting to emerge, but you now have sensors on objects that are, you know, uh, network connected, right? They, they yep. have the ability to be seen on, an, on the internet. But, you know, it's yet another data dump that's being thrown in here where it's like, hey, you know, oh, we did an internet of things, it's done. But but what what where have we moved the needle on this thing? You know, it's like, yeah. it's almost like the analogy that I always like to use is like, okay, you know, if you and I were planning an airlines company, it's like we got the planes built, we got the pilots, we got the passengers, uh, but we, we did. We, there's no airports to send these people to. So, you know, we can fly the planes around and we can move the people, but there's nowhere for them to land. Mm-hmm. And, and unfortunately, like things like IoT, it's like there is a lot of that data out there and, and there is – there's the, the practical use cases are only starting to emerge. Um, I think that, you know, part of it is that I think the other thing too is that there's also a lot of crap in the data too. Like people don't understand how incredibly noisy these databases are. And by that, I I mean uh, providing useful insights or just junk. I mean, my last company that I worked for, uh, we generated millions of inquiries a month. I mean, Nitro is, is a fascinating use case because, you know, it's, you know, a few hundred people, uh, global, global, worldwide, um, actually started in Melbourne, Australia, now headquarters in uh, downtown San Francisco. They still have the Melbourne office there. Um, but they were just, I mean, their PDF software is so popular around the world that they just were generating all these trial downloads. It was incredible. But the thing is, is that like 10% of that was valuable and the rest was just junk. 
you know, you know, spammy email addresses like ASDF at ASDF.com, you know, yeah. Barack at, Barack at Obama.com. I think he was pretty busy. <laughs> I don't know if he's, I don't know if he's downloading Nitro. Maybe, maybe we'll miss out. I think that's a risk I'm willing, that's a risk I'm willing to take. Right. Yeah. Um, but just, there is an incredible amount of noise. And if you take anything away from this, you know, AI predictive analytics thing, it's the need for us to have created new tools to work with the problems that we created, which was the, all of this data and, and, and being able to sort of find and measure the value and pick out only the stuff that we need that's going to be valuable uh, to help sales and marketing or right? go-to-market professionals do their job easier. And, and hopefully by that, by the way, uh, create a better customer experience. Um, hopefully they're doing it. So, you know, when people talk about, you know, delighting the customer and customer experience, it's, you know, meeting them at the time of need or, or solving a problem for them, um, and, and, and getting through with a relevant message that's meaningful. Um, as opposed to just saying like, you know what, let's just put the button, let's just push the button and spam everybody. And, you know, 1% of them might convert and then the rest is 99% wasted. Oh, oh, well, well, that 99%, first of all, is a very expensive problem for a business because that's an incredible amount of waste. Uh, and it's also 99% of that population that's going to be really ticked off about the message that they just is either not relevant or, or wasn't intended for them. So, you know, there is an end product, which you have to think about, which is the end user, the, the receiver of that message that hopefully is at the heart of all this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and uh, I just want to share one really uh, interesting example of an IoT um, application, I suppose, that, uh, that I've had recently. Um, my toothbrush actually is, uh, is Bluetooth connected, right? So, um, <laughs> it, uh, it syncs with your phone and it, it, um, it tracks how often you're brushing your teeth and it gives you little smiley faces if you brush for two minutes or longer, I think is the, the, the thing. And it tells you to floss and whatever. Um, and it makes this beautiful little chart um, of, of how often you're brushing and when you're meeting your goals and that kind of thing. And then after, yeah. I think it was like two months or something, it says, um, hey, it's it's time to change your toothbrush head. And then it just started pinging me every day. Hey, you need to change your head. You need to change your head. Um, <laughs> and look, it was a little bit spammy. It was a little bit annoying, but I can see- some of the value there um, for sure. the business of trying to encourage me to repeat purchase. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, and yeah, so that's just like a little taste, I guess, of maybe what we're in for. Um, cause we've seen, yeah. you know, all the, the, the innovations of, you know, internet connected forks that try to, you know, help you manage your, your diet and that kind of stuff. And most of yeah. them are just crap. They're, 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 they're not real applications that, that, are going to drive um, customer value um, and business yeah. value, but I think this one was was kind of getting towards that. So I, I just wanted to yeah. share that example. Well, the other um, one that I really I really like is um, you know I love to cycle being out here in the Bay Area. It's, it's it's a hobby that I've I've really taken up, and so I love like programs like Strava that you know really collect all my data from all my rides and runs and stuff like that, and it's it's a lot of fun, but. You know, at this point, being a collection mechanism and what I would say like a personal BI, right? The personal business intelligence, I can sit there and read it. But what I really want is like, okay, what's that? I want that coaching mechanism, okay? So like if you're looking at my time and my historical data and all this stuff, how can I be a better cycler? 
you know, what could I do? What is there a better technique that I could be doing? That's the type of stuff where I, I, I like that analogy because we're not quite there yet. We're just doing advanced counting, I call it. But I, I really hope that that's the part where, you know, how it, the data could inform, you know, better practicing and, and suggestions to us and things like that. That's where I think it starts to get to get very exciting. And I think that that's where we're headed with a lot of this AI stuff as well. And and I think that's a really interesting observation too, because uh, you know we've seen um, some mergers and acquisitions and stuff in that space in in the in the terms of uh, like Runkeeper, for example, was bought by Asics, mm-hmm. and Map My Ride, right. Map My Run was bought by Under Armour. So we're seeing actual um, apparel and uh, and I guess fitness brands starting to buy into the technology space. Um, mm-hmm. So. Again, it remains to be seen where the value is going to come for those companies from those acquisitions. But um, I think we're just on the precipice of seeing some interesting things happen in that space. Yeah, and and I think that one of its you know early warnings for healthcare systems is is could be an interesting part of it. I think just like early warning signs for your toothbrush that it's not just time to spend more money, which is great, you know, <laughs> the business, but it's also like. You know, come on, man! Like the 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 toothbrush is getting pretty grody right now. You might want to change that because it's got bacteria all over it. Jeez, throw that thing away! Yeah. Um. You know, I think that you know there are there are hopefully those same best practices where, uh, we can sort of have those early warning systems, and I that's where I think you know we could have a whole other discussion on you know the the different verticals that I think you could apply this self. I think healthcare is is certainly a very interesting one as well, but. Um, yeah, it's, it's, you know, maybe we live in interesting times, I guess, right? <laughs> we do, we do. Um, Sean, if you've got a couple more minutes, I do, I do want to ask you about uh, the, the podcast that you create, um, which sure. is called Stack and Flow. Um, yeah. So, uh, this is a, a podcast about, I guess, marketing technology tools. Um, yeah. So, firstly, where does the name come from, Stack and Flow? <laughs> Well, I you asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, and I said, I finally did it. I have a podcast, right? That, that was, <laughs> I really sold myself short. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Um, where does Stack and Flow come from? Um, so it- uh, so I'm, I'm assuming again, it, it's kind of yeah. based on the, the marketing stack. Um, and, and the, and you the know, data flow, yeah. right? It's the marketing stack and the data flow. Um I also wanted something that was, I'm not going to lie, like I wanted something that was going to sound not just like every sort of marketing cliche kind of podcast, like something about a funnel or like, you know, some sort of like data analytics thing, like, um, you know, Stack and Flow just kind of have like a cool hip hop vibe to it or something. And I don't know. I just was like, okay, I wanted something that was going to be, uh, I wanted something, you know, that would scale. And by that, I mean that. Uh, one day, I really would love to take the show beyond just talking about sales and marketing technology. Um, and so I really wanted to actually go after a name uh, that wouldn't peg me. I wouldn't paint myself into a corner, as it were, that I didn't have to, you know, just focus on this one topic. And I could explore things like, you know, we had this episode where we've talked to uh, Berkeley professor, uh, Dr. Massimo Mazzotti, who wrote this great piece about, you know, the history of algorithms, which I think is just, you know, incredibly fascinating. Um, it's applicable to sales and marketing, but it's, you know, broader and more general appeal. Uh, and that and that really was a part of it. And, you know, I think the other thing was just going through a lot of, like, bad ideas that I had with my co-host, John. Uh, until we sort of arrived on this one. And then I kind of field tested it with a few people. Um, my wife being my first line of defense. Um, mm-hmm. Usually when she tells me it's a stupid idea, it's probably not great. 
Um, I haven't had much <laughs> success not, not listening to her words of wisdom. Um, but, you know, I, I landed on that one, and it, it seriously is one of these things where I was like, it felt right. Uh, I think we could lend it to, you know, we could take the, the, the show in a, a number of different directions and still be okay. Um, and, and, and there you have it. Yeah. Okay. So, who's the most interesting guest you've had on the podcast? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I, I really did enjoy the conversation. I just mentioned uh, Dr. Massimo Mazzotti over at uh, Berkeley University, Berkeley professor. I think he was definitely up there in one of my top favorites. Um, Christopher Penn, uh, who's been a mentor and, and a friend of mine forever, and he and I argued a lot of this AI stuff on that show, and that was a lot of fun too. Um, I, they've all been sort of, you know, they've all been sort of my favorites for, for different reasons because it's also just been uh, an excuse to get some of my friends uh, recording a conversation with me because I think that, you know, I, at some point, you know, you sit and, you know, you, these conversations that you have at lunch and you say, hey, why not take a crack and see if this might be interesting if somebody was eavesdropping on this conversation. And, you know, lo and behold, enough people thought that what we were talking about was interesting because we still had the listener, the listeners continue to grow and, um, and that, and I honestly, I think that that's been a surprise that the, 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 the success of the show has been a surprise because I was going to consider any listener to be a success. Yep. Um, cause I think, I think we attacked such a niche market. Um, but the feedback I've gotten has been, been great. Um, you know, we try to find really interesting people. Yeah. That, that specialize in, in sort of sales and marketing technology and maybe sort of can, can go beyond that. But I also, you know, marketing is also full of uh, this sort of, you sort of run across the same cast of characters time and time again, whether you're sort of talking about social media or digital marketing. Uh, and I, and listen, I, I, those people are great. I know many of them personally, but I just feel like, you know, once, you know, you know, so-and-so has been on this pot, you know, he's been on eight marketing podcasts. Like what new do you really have to say? So I also wanted to use the show as uh, as an excuse to uh, bring some new voices uh, because I think that, you know, one thing I get to do is just, um, it's also for my own selfish education is just to have a interesting conversation and get their opinions on stuff so I can continue to learn. I honestly, like, it's, this has become a very selfish mechanism for me to continue my own education about what's going on there, uh, in addition to what I hope is, you know, create some interesting content that uh, other people can also learn from and enjoy as well. And hey, you know, if we crack a few jokes and have fun with it along the way, uh, then 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 all the better. And I think John you know, has just been an incredible partner, um, around, you know, John, people don't know John Wall. He's been doing podcasting for, you know, before podcasting became a thing. And then probably before <laughs> even that, you know, it's like, yeah. he's just been doing this for so long. So I just saw this as a ploy to ride his coattails. I was just, <laughs> just, just going to cheat my way onto the podcast scene. Yeah. Um, but he's, he's, you know, he really knows, um, how to package shows and how to structure stuff. And I, I've learned a lot of, you know, not just bringing my own audio engineering and sound design sort of um, mind to the to the table, but I also think, listen, I think it's a good medium to bet on too, to be completely mm. honest. Like I think it's worth, you know, I see podcasting as word of mouth at scale. Uh, one of my favorite podcasters, Leo like Laporte. That. Yeah, it, well, Leo Laporte, I think it was Leo Laporte, maybe it was somebody else, but I always feel like this quote is attributed to him. Uh, for people who don't know him, he, This Week in Tech, a very popular technology podcast, um, I think it definitely has global reach, and he's, he's one of the you know, big podcasting names that's out there. You know, it's, he says, you know, 
It, it, there's nothing more intimate than being able to, you know, whisper into the ears of your listeners. And for especially people that are exposing how to get their brand messages and product out there, um, you know, I think it's a great medium. You're also catching people at different parts of your day. It's a very unique message, uh, a way to get your message and your your content and ideas in front of people versus like, you know, bombarding them with email and hoping to surface in their email box. It's like, well, you know, if 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 Samantha's on her way home from the train, she might fire up a podcast and take a listen. And hey, if your message is there, then you you caught her while she was in transit, uh, heading from work to home. And and those you know those are experiences that now you have um, access to. The real key is. Will the marketers abuse it like they abuse every other channel um, <laughs> and, and ruin it for everybody? I hope not. I hope not. But I think it's uh, I think it's a little bit harder than batch emailing though, right? Producing yeah, think, quality audio so. content is hard enough that it's almost like there's a barrier to entry for marketers to to jump yeah. in and, and abuse and you, it. So. It's got to sound good too, and that's not just you know my background coming back up to the surface again. It's just that it needs to be interesting. Um, an original and and keep people captivating. I also think you know it's got to be. I think there's something to be said about experimenting with the length of shows too. Mm. Uh, you know, some of my favorite podcasts uh, are I use the the uh, NPR Up First and the Daily, which is the New York Times, which is literally these almost like these stinger podcasts to give me my morning briefing about what's happening in the news, uh, and they're like ten minutes long. And I use it because it's perfect because, like, you know, I, I walk the dog in the morning and, like, that's our routine and I sort of understand what the big, you know, headlines are of the day and they go into it. And it's great. It's kind of one and done. But I also think there's something really interesting to the the long-form content as well, like, you know, Serial yeah. doing the whole thing where they got, you know, that S-Town podcast is now. Mm-hmm. You can just binge listen to that thing because it's just so well done and the storytelling is so captivating and good. So I, I think it's a really cool medium. Um I like this theater of the mind stuff. It's it's radio. I've always been a fan of the audio medium. It's it's I'm I'm an I'm an audio learner too. So like it's I've just been around. I've always enjoyed audiobooks and things like that. Um but I I just think that it's you know, it it really does unlock creativity for people because it's mm-hmm. not like television that's just, you know, that's just porting into your brain because it's all done for you. You don't have to do any work. The pictures are there, the sound is aligned, and everything is just a full production for you to digest very easily. Audio makes you work, man. Like, you don't get to see what's happening there, and I think that's the coolest part. Like, I think that there's there is a lot of theater of the mind stuff that's in there, and I think that that's what... Uh, is what's driving the medium, and and I think that you know podcasting is uh it's it's I think it's building an audience and ad- adoption across generations uh, year after year, and uh, you yep. know I, I highly encourage people to explore a lot of the great shows and uh, even experiment uh, with with the medium yourself. It's a lot of fun. Mm. And and I mean you spoke about it before that the reason that you were creating the podcast is you know it was echoing uh, in my mind um, very similar to what I'm trying to do with with this uh, it's it's an excuse for me to have fascinating conversations with intelligent people people like yourself um, people like John Wall who was on the show a <laughs> I, was of gonna, weeks ago. I was actually just you know? going to say how did I get how did I get on this thing? <laughs> so. 
Like, I really enjoyed this discussion and and, uh, and I get a lot out of the show. Um, and if other people listen in, then that's great. Um, but, uh, but really, um, fundamentally, at, at its core, when I started this show, it was just an excuse for me to have these interesting conversations. And you know what? I, I think um, having a, a long form show that's, you know, kind of an hour long or sometimes under, sometimes a little bit over, um, some people have complained about that, but- I actually find that uh, it allows me to get really deep with people and, and uncover stories that, uh, that that you may not get to otherwise. You know, I, a few weeks ago, um, I, uh, I did a podcast with one of my mentors, somebody that I know quite well. And uh, just because we switched a mic on and we spoke solidly about a few topics for an hour, we uncovered some stories that I've never heard him say. Um, yeah, so, best. it's it's just really fascinating. You get to know people a lot better. And, uh, and yeah, I, I love the medium as well. Yeah. Well, Sean, the final question that I always ask is, what's exciting you right now? Well, look, you know, we talked enough about AI and predictive. And I think that, you know, there's a lot more around artificial intelligence that I get very, very excited about. Um I, I get more excited about solving bigger problems. Um, I think that there's ways that we can apply this type of technology, not just, you know, helping sales and marketing people sell better and market better, you know, sell more stuff. Um, but I, I think that there are bigger problems to solve. I'm, I'm very interested in stuff that's happening in supply chain right now. I think that stuff's fascinating because I think that, you know, little tweaks in some of these massive businesses could mean, you know, less raw materials being pulled from the earth uh, and, and then all sorts of, you know, things that I think actually have really t- big tangible impacts on people's lives and, 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 our, and our world and things like that beyond just sort of sales and marketing. I think health, things in healthcare, um, you know, my wife has a life sciences and healthcare background, and so I think it's something that, that stays close to me uh, as well. Um, and, and, and I think that from, from a non-technological view, um, the other stuff that, that really excites me actually is more, um, it, how do you find ways to sort of break from the everyday and sort of find your center? So things like, you know, studying meditation and a lot of the Buddhist teachings and things like that. I think it's really easy when you work in technology, especially in marketing. It's just like, you know, the the monkey chatter brain that we don't always recognize. It's just going, 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 going. And we just never think to like take a break. And like we're so stimulated. It's unbelievable. I'm always on my phone or somebody's got this or the TV, you know, you know I'm listening to things. I got stuff in my ears. Um, there is something incredibly innovative about taking a break and finding you know, not to get, you know, super meta on you, but, you know, finding, f- finding that center um, and figuring out how you lend that to your own performance, to finding your own happiness in your life and how you overcome challenges. Um, I, that stuff really fascinates me too. And, and it's something that I, you know, I, 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 I really care about a lot and I, I, you know, strive to try to explore as much as I can. So, you know, there's definitely uh, a lot, a lot going on there. Awesome. Well, Sean, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. It was a blast. Thanks for listening to Mate. Wow, what an awesome episode. And thank you to Sean for coming on the show today. Um, I think there was some really great insights. 
If you'd like to check out any of the resources, um, show notes, uh, information about Mate, me, all that kind of stuff, head to the website matepodcast.com. If you enjoyed this episode, um, please leave a review on iTunes and tell me why. Um, It really helps uh, Mate grow and and new people find the show. So, um, head to the iTunes store and leave me five stars. Thanks. This show was edited by Josh Armour from Armourpod Productions. The Mate Podcast logo was designed by the very generous Courtney Carmen, and the music is by Nine Inch Nails, used under a Creative Commons licence. And before I go today, I've got some interesting career updates or some news to share with you soon. Um, I'll, I'll be talking about it on a future episode of Mate. But until then, if you want to get a bit of a sneak peek on what I'm up to with my entrepreneurial adventures, send me an email and... Uh, I will give you a bit of a preview um, before the world finds out. The email is adam at matepodcast.com. And of course, this show is always made with love in my hometown, Melbourne, Australia. I'm your host, Adam Jaffrey, and this was a Jaffrey product. Bye for now. Thank you for coming on the show. Um, the, the final question, the, the final question that I, or, or yeah, let me start that again. I'll edit this bit out.